We really need new phones. T Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge apply. Ctmobile.com. It's three o'clock somewhere. Time for a My Mochi ice cream snack. My Mochi ice cream is cool, creamy scoops of premium ice cream wrapped in sweet, pillowy dough. And get this. All of My Mochi's fabulous flavors, like strawberry, mango, double chocolate, and cookies and cream, are only around 80 calories per piece. Talk about a guilt-free, indulgent experience. Each box of My Mochi ice cream has six perfectly portioned, gluten-free mochis that are great for grab-and-go. So feel good while curbing your afternoon cravings, or the midnight munchies. Yeah, you know who you are with the joyfully chill sensation of My Mochi ice cream. Find My Mochi ice cream at Target or visit MyMochi.com to locate a grocery store near you. This podcast is supported by FedEx. FedEx offers fast delivery, more visibility, simple returns, and weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. population on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. With FedEx, you get picture-proof of delivery, ensuring you always know where your package is. Returns are simple with packageless and paperless returns. Plus, FedEx Ground is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. So, what are you waiting for? See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. You're listening to the CBS Sunday Morning Podcast on Play.it, brought to you by the new film Trumbo. Good morning. I'm Charles Osgood, and this is Sunday morning. Christmas is right around the corner. And in this season of office parties and family get-togethers, we want to be at our best. Well, according to one psychologist, there is a near surefire way to always appear in good standing. Rita Braver will tell us all about it in our Sunday morning cover story. I'd like you to put your hands on your hips with your elbows out. Did you ever imagine that just posing like a superhero for two minutes could make you act more confidently? What are some practical reasons why this can make a difference? When we feel powerless, we feel anxious, and that makes it impossible for us to be present and to perform well. Please welcome Amy Cuddy. Ahead on Sunday morning, power posing with Harvard professor Amy Cuddy. We'll be posing questions this morning to Will Smith, whose latest movie is about the risk of concussion from playing football. He'll be directing his answers to our Tracy Smith. Actor Will Smith always goes for the knockout, whether he's playing a prize fighter. Welcome to Earth. Or an alien fighter. Truth. And now he's going for it again. Tell the truth. Later on Sunday morning. The biggest movie star on the planet, Will Smith. 
Oh, is that too much? I thought Denzel was gonna be here. <laughs> <laughs> Where's D? <laughs> the Big Short is a new movie on what might seem an unlikely topic. At least that's what Michael Lewis, who wrote the book it's based on, thought at first. He'll talk to our John Blackstone. You found Hollywood kind of baffling, I guess. Did well, you? I still find it baffling. I mean, it, writer Michael it, Lewis did not expect The Big Short, his book on the 2008 economic collapse, to be turned into a movie. What is that? That's America's housing market. It was not the most obvious material. The thing that made it possible was the quality of the characters. The characters completely carried the story. The making of The Big Short, ahead on Sunday morning. And cut. A familiar name is back on Broadway this season. He's the composer of many a blockbuster musical. Mo Rocca has saved us a seat. Yes, you're in the School of Rock is the newest hit Broadway show from composer Andrew Lloyd Webber. It's not a musical that's going to change the course of the Western musical as we presently know it. Humble words from the man who spun box office gold from a phantom, fascists, and a bunch of felines. It's faded. You'd have to get a new one. Well, but, but this is the original from 1983. <laughs> this is the one I wore to Pyle Junior High School every day. Now and forever, Lord Andrew Lloyd Webber. Benita Nyer offers us a short and sweet taste of the Kringle. With Martha Teichner, we'll hear a concert of heavenly voices. Steve Hartman has been watching a secret Santa at work. Those things and more. Next. This is a tiny tweak that can lead to a huge change. Taking a stand. And later, craving a Kringle. Based on the true story. Trumbo, you're the highest paid writer in Hollywood. In 1947, he was blacklisted for his beliefs. Hollywood is just a haven for overpaid traders. So he rewrote the rules. We do the one thing everyone says we can't. We write. Trumbo is one of the year's must-see pictures. Brian Cranston Towers. Be prepared to go to prison. Helen Mirren is terrific. Whisper a movie you've written in secret. Maybe I've even heard of it. Maybe you have. Trumbo, rated R. Under 17, not admitted without parent. Only in theaters this November. Everywhere. Thanksgiving. Can striking the proper pose put you in good standing for the rest of your life? Our cover story now is reported by Rita Braver. That was amazing. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Beautiful. So why are they lining up to pose like Wonder Woman with someone you may not even recognize? No, I love you, and I was so excited to meet you. Well, 43-year-old psychologist Amy okay. Cuddy... Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Amy Cuddy. ...is an internet sensation. So we're really fascinated with body language. It all began when she was tapped to give a prestigious TED Talk in 2012. And we make sweeping judgments and inferences from body language. And those judgments can predict really meaningful life outcomes, like who we hire or promote, um, who we ask out on a date. Using images of everyone from Oprah to Mick Jagger to world leaders to athletes, she talks about the relationship between posture and power. So what is your body language communicating to me? What's mine communicating to you? And but she says it's more than how you appear publicly. Believe it or not, 
Her studies show that if you stand like a superhero privately before going into a stressful situation, there will actually be hormonal changes in your body chemistry that cause you to be more confident and in command. Two minutes, two minutes, two minutes. Before you go into the next stressful evaluative situation, for two minutes, try doing this in the elevator, in a bathroom stall, at your desk behind closed doors. That's what you want to do. Her TED Talk has been viewed 30 million times, with power posing even popping up on television shows like Grey's Anatomy. What is happening? I'm being a superhero. Okay. All right, thank you for coming in. So what I'd like you to do is stand in a posture that I'll describe to you. But make no mistake, Cuddy's work is grounded in science. Now I'd like you to put your hands on your hips with your elbows out. As a Harvard so Business School professor, so she's conducted a series of experiments. Pull your shoulders back. Like the one she demonstrated for chin. us. And you're gonna stand that way for about 60 seconds. Student volunteers stand in a power pose or hunch over in a powerless pose for a minute before putting a golf ball. Early results indicate that for both men and women, the first putt is closer to the hole after the power pose. When you do the opposite, when you act like a scared animal by slouching and collapsing inward, uh, you perform worse. Thank you so much. And in her new book, Presence, Cuddy writes about how your body can influence your mind, presenting a whole series of poses that can help people feel powerful. And now I want you to lean back, exact, you got it, and open your shoulders. That's the CEO pose. I hope this doesn't mean I have to fire a lot of people. Well, it's, it's funny because there are a lot of pictures of U.S. presidents sitting like this in the Oval Office. I thought she was on to some things that are, we don't verbalize, they're not, uh, you know, we won't write about it so much, but we notice it. David Gergen, who worked for four presidents and now teaches at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government, has brought Cuddy in to share her theories with his students. Why do you think it isn't something that's traditionally taught? We, we don't learn this stuff in school. No, we don't. We don't teach it, but you notice it if you're in the arena. You see it all the time. You know, when I first worked in the White House as a young guy, I worked for Richard Nixon, and I'd see him come out of the Oval Office after a tough meeting, and he'd be sort of hunched over like this. He had a real scowl on his face, and he'd get into that middle room. He'd walk into the middle room, get ready to go in the, in the cabinet room, and throw his shoulders back, put a big grin on his face, and walk in, and boy, I'm ready for the world. Ronald Reagan had a lot of that. His bearing made a big difference in how people thought of him, the way he walked. John Wayne-like, you know? Those things make a difference, and I thought Amy was on some things that just weren't in the research. It made a difference in Amy Cuddy's own life in 2011, when friends put her in touch with the man doing this power pose. How did you come to be posing like this? Um, there's no real good excuse. <laughs> you sometimes, though, have compared this pose to that which wild animals looking for a mate actually strike. Well, it does <laughs> resemble, you might have noticed, a peacock with its tail feathers spread. So you, you thought he was searching. I, I'm not immune to, to the, the effects that I talk about, so I think I, I, I fell for it. Cuddy and Australian data science analyst Paul Koster were married last year. 
when you use a more expansive posture, you will be more, more accurate in these. There has been some criticism of Cuddy's theories from other researchers. Some saying that, well, it only works in very specific kinds of circumstances. I, I, I welcome uh, challenges that help us to grow the science, right, to move it forward so that the better we understand it, the better, the better we can use it. Cuddy points out that power posing can't magically give you knowledge or abilities that you don't already have. You don't mean like being able to leap over a tall building in a single bound? Not at all. <laughs> so it's personal power. It's about bringing your best self forward, having, having the key to unlock that best self and show it. This is hardwired in one direction. Power leads to this kind of behavior. But what is really remarkable about Amy Cuddy is that she is able to do the work she does. While a sophomore in college, she was in a car crash. I was thrown out the side of the car, and uh, I had a, a serious traumatic brain injury. You were told that you had a diminished brain function at one yeah. point. Yeah, I had lost cognitive function. I mean, I, I had lost 30 IQ points, and I was told that I should probably figure out something else to do, that I was unlikely to finish college. But she powered through, going on to get a PhD in psychology from Princeton. Yet she had a secret. You say that you felt like an imposter, someone oh, who didn't belong there. I absolutely Even though you've done all this work to get there. Yeah. But for a long time, I had been thinking, not supposed to be here, not supposed to be here. And her dramatic but confession of feeling here, like an imposter um, mesmerized the audience at her TED Talk when she spoke of trying to help a student with similar fears. She came in totally defeated and she said, I'm not supposed to be here. And that was the moment for me because two things happened. One was that I realized, oh my gosh, I don't feel like that anymore. You know, I don't feel that anymore, but she does and I get that feeling. And the second was she is supposed to be here. Like she can fake it, she can become it. So I was like, Yes, you are. You are supposed to be here, and tomorrow you're going to fake it. You're going to make yourself powerful, and you know, you're going <laughs> to. I needed some. And now they come to meet her. Perfect. And they write to her. So this is just one volume of the emails that you have gotten. She's heard from people all over the world. Without further ado, here is Amy Cuddy. And now Amy Cuddy says she has one major goal. How do I give this away to more people? How do I give it away to more people who can give it away to more people? Stand up straight and realize who you are. To me, that's where the energy is. I want everyone to know that they can have power. This is a tiny tweak that can lead to a huge change. Coming up, everyone's favorite grandma. Based on the true story, Trumbo, you're the highest paid writer in Hollywood. In 1947, he was blacklisted for his beliefs. Hollywood is just a haven for overpaid traitors. So he rewrote the rules. We do the one thing everyone says we can't. We write. Trumbo is one of the year's must-see pictures. Brian Cranston Towers. Be prepared to go to prison. Helen Mirren is terrific. Whisper a movie you've written in secret. Maybe I've even heard of it. Maybe you have. Trumbo, rated 
R. Under 17, not admitted without parent. Only in theaters this November. Everywhere Thanksgiving. And now a page from our Sunday morning almanac. December 13th, 1961, 54 years ago today. The day the painter known as Grandpa Moses died at the age of 101. Born in 1860, Anna Mary Robertson Moses had no formal training in art. Instead, she lived much of her life on a farm in Eagle Bridge, New York. She took up painting in her late 70s to keep herself busy after arthritis had made it too difficult for her to sew. A chance discovery by a traveling collector led to her first one-woman show in New York City in 1940. Hailed as one of the greatest of American folk artists, Grandma Moses drew on her own long-ago experiences. I've been inclined to, to paint uh, old things, I suppose because I'm old. She was nearly 95 years old when she talked to CBS's Edward R. Morrow in 1955. What sort of advice would you give to those people if they had time to try their hand at painting? Well, anybody can paint that wants to paint. Can they? Oh, sure. Sure, anybody can paint. But Grandma Moses advised would-be artists to follow her lead and avoid taking lessons. If they have a teacher, they will soon paint as the teacher paints. And it's best for them to use their own ideas. Personal though her paintings were, she claimed to have no deep attachment to them. You hate to see a painting sold after you've made it and like it and looked at oh, no. it a long time. Oh, no. No? no, I'd rather see the money. Grandma Moses left her admirers plenty of paintings to like and look at, more than 1,600 in all. Next, how sweet it is. They're called Kringles, the pride of Racine, Wisconsin. If you're unfamiliar with these tasty treats, don't worry, Benita Nyer has a tale that's short and sweet. In Racine, Wisconsin, the holidays are all about the Kringle. There's a certain skill involved in making the Wisconsin state pastry. Good Lord, that's a lot of dough. Isn't it? <laughs> it takes lots of this. Then yeah. To make the dough flaky. Then you have to do this again and again to make the 36 layers. Does everybody do this much by hand? As far as I know now, nobody at all does. I think we're the last ones. For four generations, Benson's Bakery has been mastering the technique. You can see the layers of well, You can see the butter shortening. really the best. Yeah. When the Benson family opened its bakery 81 years ago, they followed the Danish tradition of a pretzel-shaped pastry. Its popularity quickly earned Racine the nickname Kringleville. It's not Kringleville. Complete with a Kringle queen and a Kringle-inspired polka. Originally, the Danish pastry had an almond filling with raisins. Now Ben Jr. and his son, Ben III, they look right. <laughs> make close to 30 flavors. Almond, apple, apricot, um, blueberry, cherry, raspberry, pecan, those are our most popular. 
To save time, the pretzel shape became an oval, but everything else has stayed the same. My grandpa, until he died, would come up here, and he'd say, you just keep the quality, and he says, you'll be here forever. Uh, well, I'm still here. When you come into Racine, one of the first things people will ask you is, have you had a Kringle yet? I had to come all the way from Scottsdale, Arizona to get one of these. <laughs> Not far from Benson's is O&H Danish Bakery, family-run since 1949. That looks good. You know, we make our own fillings here. Owner Eric Olson took us on a tour of his 39,000-square-foot facility, where machines have mastered the delicate layers and folds. Daily, they make five to 7,000 Kringles. During the holidays, they shipped up to 20,000 in one day. In the late 1950s, some of the bakers started shipping Kringle as gifts, and that became very popular, so the word kind of spread. People come here because we have a vegan Kringle, and uh, we're noted for it. At Larson's Bakery, they've combined techniques, rolling the dough by machine, then filling and forming their vegan Kringles by hand. Don Hutchinson's father bought the bakery in 1969, and Hutchinson says a Kringle from anywhere else just isn't the same. You know, it's kind of like going to New York and having a New York bagel. You know, you can't get a New York bagel anywhere else because they put the time into it and the labor into making it right. You must feel some sense of pride. Absolutely. There's not a lot of bakers anymore. So to do this and to carry on the tradition of making Kringles here in the scene is something that I enjoy. Regardless of how they're made, by hand, with help from a machine, or a little bit of both, you can taste the craftsmanship in every bite. It seems like all the bakers here are friends. You know, it's friendly competition. We want to make the best quality product, one that everybody can be proud of, because we're all representing Racine. I found a disease that no one has ever seen. Still to come, Will Smith takes the field. But next, music man, Andrew Lloyd Webber. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Memory, sung by Betty Buckley, was a showstopper in the 1980s musical Cats. The composer of that song, Andrew Lloyd Webber. And he's back on Broadway with a brand new show and talking with our Mo Rocker. I don't know what really makes a, a, a great musical or not. In the end, you write it and you write it because you want to write it. And if Lord Andrew Lloyd Webber writes it, there's a good chance it'll be a hit. During a four-decade-long career, he spun box office gold from felines, to me, it's fascists, Don't cry for me, and a phantom. Turn your face away from the garish light. 
all of them characters in some of the most commercially successful shows in Broadway history. Yes, you're in the band. He hopes to add to that list with the just-opened School of Rock. Based on the Jack Black movie about a washed-up musician who teaches a bunch of prep schoolers to unleash their inner Zeppelin. It's not a musical that's going to change the course of the Western musical as we presently know it. I mean, but hopefully you take something away from it. And I mean, it's got some, you know, catchy songs. In fact, Lloyd Webber is enjoying some of the best reviews in his career for School of Rock. One, two, one, two, one, two, three, one, two, three. The show isn't entirely new territory for him. Early on, he and lyricist Tim Rice teamed up for one of the first ever rock musicals, Jesus Christ Superstar. This song from the 1971 show was so popular, two versions of it landed on the charts at the same time. That was a song that I always thought. It was a melody that could take a story. You see, I mean, I mean, I mean, it, way it, it has a progression and a movement, you see. So, I mean, da, 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 da. Telling stories with music started early for Lloyd Webber. And then, you know. Raised in a family of musicians, his father was director of the London College of Music, the future impresario fashioned a miniature stage from a record player. Were your musical tastes typical? Uh, no. I mean, my love of musical theatre was certainly not typical. I mean, it, it was considered to be very, very abnormal, in fact. <laughs> it may sound amazing uh, to people today, um, but Rodgers and Hammerstein... Uh, were considered by, how can I put it, the, you know, the sort of opinion-making class, yeah, the tastemakers and everything, to be off the scale as sentimental, you know. I remember once saying at a dinner when I was very little, and there were frightfully grand people that said, you know, I like Carousel, and what? You know. After dropping out of the Royal College of Music, Lloyd Webber began collaborating with Tim Rice while still in his teens. The pair returned to Broadway post-superstar with Evita, a musical about Eva Peron, the wife of Argentina's military dictator. Don't cry for me, Argentina. It's a dramatic moment finding a, a, an anthem that could turn on her. You know. All through my wild days, my mad existence. Because you see, that can be played in complete triumph, you know. Evita was a hit. But Cats, based on the poems of T.S. Eliot and Lloyd Webber's first musical without Rice, was a mega hit. I played the cast album of Cats so many times my brother almost killed me. And he would come into my room and he'd say, I'm sick of hearing about the Jellicle Cats. You know what Jellicle Cats are, do you? And I actually dogs. don't. What are Jellicle well, Cats? Well, Jellicle Cats are a corruption of, of what the English sort of 
posh upper class say, dear little cats. Oh. So dear little cats become jellical cats. Oh, dear little cats. And, and if you were in Downton Abbey, you would say, dear little cats. Oh, so dear little cats, da, dear yes. little cats. Jellical songs for jellical cats, jellical songs for jellical cats. Are you a cat person? Yes, absolutely. How many do you have? Well, at the moment I have four. You know, all Turkish van cats. Turkish van? What's yeah. a van cat? A van cat is a swimming cat. Do you yeah. have a pond that they can swim yeah, in? Yeah, they like going to a swimming pool. Are they going to your swimming pool? Yes, absolutely. Are they friendly? Very friendly. They're very friendly, but they're also extremely strong-willed. With Cats and then Phantom of the Opera, Lloyd Webber became famous beyond the world of musical theater. I was asked if I would play the role of Amadeus in the movie of that name. You were asked and to play I, Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. Yes, and I turned it down. And it was, uh, it was one of those things. The more I said no, the more they thought it was a great idea. What a wild thing to be asked. This is like 1982, 83. It would have been about, it was round about that. I mean, I remember the final meeting was just before the opening night of Cats on Broadway, when finally I said, I'm really not doing this. I said, look, I'm really flattered, but there is an issue. If I play the role, it's got to be my music, not Mozart's. <laughs> I thought this might get rid of them. Well, one of them said, actually, and it's a rather good idea. And I went, oh, no, no, please free me. Well, like, when the movie came out, did you think, maybe I should have taken the role? No, I thought, what a good thing I didn't do this. Lloyd Webber seems keenly aware of his own limits. He writes the music, but not the words to his shows. Why haven't you written lyrics in your shows? Because I can't. Have you tried? Um, when I was a kid, I tried, and I soon learned that this was not a skill that I really wouldn't... I mean, writing lyrics is something which is very specific. And, and the great lyric writers, I mean, you know, they have a turn of phrase and a way of, uh, of writing that I simply couldn't get near. And not all of his shows have been smash hits on Broadway. What was up with the musical where everybody was on roller skates pretending they were trains? Oh, that was fun, great fun. Um, it was a very stupid idea to bring it here in the form that it was. I hugely opposed it. It's still running in Germany and places like this. It's written for kids, entirely written for kids. But don't cry for Andrew Lloyd Webber. He's got an Oscar, three Grammys, and seven Tonys. And Phantom of the Opera is the longest running Broadway show ever. I know that a lot of British people don't like to talk about money, but I'm not British, so I have to ask. By some measure, you're the richest man in all of pop music. I very much doubt that. I think you are. You've no, got like a I, billion I, dollars. I, I, I've done extremely well, but I think you might find that the composer and the lyricist of The Lion King were rather ahead of what really? of me. Yeah, I think so. You think that Elton John has more money than you? Oh, yeah. You do not. No, there's no. Well, way. he goes out for a few million dollars a concert, so for a start. Uh, yeah, but you got to, like, a billion is a thousand Listen, million. It really doesn't matter. The main, most important thing with money is to use it. That's why I, I have my foundation. But I can assure you that I am nowhere near the top of the tree when it comes to the rich Brits in music. We stand corrected. Andrew Lloyd Webber is number two, just behind Sir Paul McCartney on the list of rich Brits in music. So he's doing just fine. We've come to the part of the interview where we sum up your life. How would you describe it? Well, I think I'm the luckiest man alive, really, because I've been able to do the one thing in my life that I really love. I'm 67 now, and I'm still doing it. And I don't intend to stop. Coming up, happiness and health. 
based on the true story. Trumbo, you're the highest paid writer in Hollywood. In 1947, he was blacklisted for his beliefs. Hollywood is just a haven for overpaid traitors. So he rewrote the rules. We do the one thing everyone says we can't. We write. Trumbo is one of the year's must-see pictures. Brian Cranston Towers. Are you prepared to go to prison? Helen Mirren is terrific. Whisper a movie you've written in secret. Maybe I've even heard of it. Maybe you have. Trumbo, rated R. Under 17, not admitted without parent. Only in theaters this November. Everywhere. Thanksgiving. It happened this past week. Don't worry. Cheery news for grumpy folks everywhere. Be happy. A report in the British medical journal Lancet cites a study concluding that there is no link between happiness and a longer life. The study tracked a million British women ages 50 to 69 for 10 years. Researchers asked the women questions about happiness as well as their health and concluded, quote, happiness and related measures of well-being do not appear to have any direct effect on mortality. So much, it would appear, for the whole cheer-up school of self-help, which warns the disgruntled that worrying and fretting could drive a person to an early grave. Still, there are some caveats. The study relies on the women's own self-assessments of their happiness. And remember, the study was women-only, no guarantees that what's true for a million British women would hold true for even one grumpy man. Don't worry, be happy. Coming up... Wall Street took a good idea, turned it into an atomic bomb. The big fuss about the big short. Now, our subject is a film mixing comedy and finance. Nobody could be more surprised that The Big Short has made it to the big screen than the author of the book that inspired it. John Blackstone offers us a preview. In a way, The Big Short is part of a Hollywood tradition, the disaster movie. Disaster we all lived through. Wall Street took a good idea and turned it into an atomic bomb of fraud and stupidity. The Big Short looks at what caused the 2008 financial crisis that cost millions their homes, jobs, and savings. The whole housing market is propped up on these bad loans. They will fail. The movie starring Steve Carell, Christian Bale, Brad Pitt, and Ryan Gosling was nominated this past week for four Golden Globes and two Screen Actors Guild Awards. Anyone can see that there's a real estate bubble. It tells the story of a few investors who saw the bubble being created in the housing market when no one else did. So Mike Burry, a guy who gets his hair cut at Supercuts and doesn't wear shoes, knows more than Alan Greenspan and Hank Paulson. Yeah, Dr. Mike Burry, yes, he does. The film is based on the 2010 book by Michael Lewis. You've got these, these oddballs who are kind of on the margins of the financial system who saw this crisis as it was developing, and nobody wanted to listen to them, and they made fortunes betting on the collapse of the system. If Morgan goes under, we end up with nothing. I say when we sell. This isn't about you. This isn't about you. Hey, hey, side hey, hey, I so, say when we sell. Your books are based on characters. Are you always on the lookout yes. for a character? It's char- a character in a situation. If, if you ask me what's the starting point for books for me, it's almost always that. It's a character in a situation. You smell that? What is that? A cologne? No. 
smell money. The characters in the big short are in a complicated situation involving risky mortgage bonds sold by big banks. This is your basic mortgage bond. They are trying to figure out what happens if homeowners begin to default on their mortgages and those bonds lose value. The default rates are already up from 1% to 4%, fellas. And if they rise to 8%, and they will, a lot of these triple Bs are going to zero, too. And then that happens. What is that? That's America's housing market. I did wonder while I was working on it, is this really a book? It turned out to be a bestseller on the New York Times list for 28 weeks. But Lewis didn't write it with a movie in mind. I don't feel I'm responsible for the movie. I'm responsible for the book. It's a very nice situation. If it goes really well, people give me credit for it. And, I, and, and if it goes badly, I just say he did it. And cut. He is screenwriter and director Adam McKay. You don't think of a book about that subject as being a page turner. And you don't think of McKay as an obvious choice to write and direct a movie about complex financial issues. His previous works are Will Ferrell comedies, including Anchorman. I immediately regret this decision. And Talladega Nights. I just want to take time to say thank you for my family. And of course, my red-hot smoking wife, Carly, who's a stone-cold fox. Mm. When you do big, silly comedies, you, you learn to kind of disengage from worrying about what the critical response is, and you just worry about making a movie that works. And I think it really served me in this case. When McKay had to explain how banks disguised risky mortgage bonds to look like secure investments, he brought in celebrity <laughs> chef Anthony Bourdain. The banks, stuck with unsold bonds, Bourdain says, were like a chef stuck with unsold fish. Whatever crappy levels of the bond I don't sell, I throw into a seafood stew. See, it's not old fish. It's a whole new thing. The tricks he used to get in the heads of the audience, I mean, it's diabolical. I think later I found out he was a little dubious until he saw the movie, and then he was overjoyed that it actually worked. During filming of The Big Short, Lewis never visited the set. You find, at least in the beginning, you found Hollywood kind of baffling, I guess. Did well, you? I still find it baffling. I mean, the, the, there's such an accidental quality to, the, to these things getting made. In so 2003, like, producers offered uh, to buy the film rights uh, to Moneyball, Lewis's book about Oakland A's general manager, Billy Bean. Billy Bean wasn't happy originally no, about... No, Billy Bean was really unhappy about the idea of a movie being made. I said, don't worry, they'll never make the movie, they'll just give you the money. That was my experience up to that point. They pay you until they get bored with the project and move on. I said, it's just like free money. And then one day he calls me, it was very funny, he calls me, he says, you bastard, Brad Pitt's coming to my house and my wife is putting on makeup and the babysitter's wearing a dress. And he said, and he said you said this wasn't gonna happen. I don't watch the games. With Brad Pitt playing Bean, Moneyball was a hit. Lewis's book, The Blind Side, also became a popular movie starring Sandra Bullock. You can thank me later. As a suburban mother who takes in a homeless high school football player. Tony here's your quarterback, all right? You protect his blind side. When you look at him, you think of me. Yes, ma'am. The Big Short is Lewis's 12th book, but it has much in common with his first, Liar's Poker, about his brief experience working on Wall Street during the stock market boom of the 1980s. That, too, was a bestseller. But Lewis admits books about the financial markets don't necessarily appeal to every reader. You said you didn't think your mother had read The Big Short. You weren't sure? If my mother watches this, I'm in trouble. But I don't know that she has. 
my mother's a voracious reader, but like narratives about Wall Street, even when I'm the main subject, I'm not so sure she gravitates to those. If she goes to see the movie, The Big Short. She will see the movie. She will understand it. Oh, totally. It's very smart and interesting. And so I think she'll be, wow, that's different. Uh, but she'll, I think she'll completely understand it. Come here, I want to talk to you a minute. Next, this is for you. It's $100. Secret Santa's oh, coming to town. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. The identity of at least one secret Santa remains secure this holiday season, but his good deeds are known far and wide. Here's Steve Hartman. Was a few weeks before Christmas when there rose such a clatter, the people of Pittsburgh must have thought something's the matter. Yep. But far from it. Well, let's roll. Once again this year, the man in the red coat, who I know only as Secret Santa, is out doing random acts of kindness across America. We ready? Every year, with the help of his elves and local law enforcement, this anonymous wealthy businessman gives away about $100,000 worth of $100 bills to total strangers. That's it. Asking for nothing in return, except to spread the kindness. See you, sweetie. Give a hug. Tamika Green is a program coordinator at the YMCA. She said she wanted to use some of her money to help the kids in her after-school program. And I promise, as soon as I get out of here, I'm going to call my job and be like, guess what? Yeah, we'll put another couple hundred in there. And I got to quit talking to you. I'm running out of money. All right, man. We love you. You're doing great. Don't stop. <laughs> Thank you so much. See you, baby. <laughs> Secret Santa has been doing this for about a decade, but he says he feels more needed now than ever. This year, the time is perfect for everybody to come together, one random act of kindness at a time. Merry Christmas, baby. Is she a Christian? Who knows? i got to give you another hundred. A Muslim? <laughs> Who cares? All right. All he looks for are people who seem like they could use a little caring in their lives. Merry Christmas, babe. In other words, anyone. Kindness is the bridge between all people. Merry Christmas, babe. Kindness is the one thing that cuts through everything, regardless of your station in life. And really, that's what he's handing out here. It's not the money. Money doesn't make people break down like this. These are the faces of people overwhelmed by something truly priceless. Come here, I want to talk to you, man. And lest you doubt that, consider this encounter. This is for you. It's $100 from Secret Santa. Her name is Mildred Morris. I just came from chemo. You just came from chemo? And I work every day, sir. Mildred has stage four breast cancer. She said a million dollars couldn't have turned her day around. And yet here she was. Thank you. Overjoyed. God bless you. God bless you, babe. I am happy. You've got to explain that to me. And it's just amazing that there's so much compassion out here with all this other ugly stuff that's going on. Every year people tell me they'd like to do this, but they just don't have the money. But now we know the only currency you need is kindness. Thank you. Thank you. You can hug him too. Still to come actor Will Smith and Harmony for the Holidays. Series 4, de-atomizer. That's what I'm talking about. Noisy cricket.
It's Sunday morning on CBS, and here again is Charles Osgood. Will Smith co-starred with Tommy Lee Jones in the science fiction comedy Men in Black back in 1997. By contrast, his latest film, Concussion, is grounded in science fact. His performance as a researcher into football safety won him a Golden Globe nomination just this past week. All in all, plenty of grist for questions from our Tracy Smith. I found a disease that no one has ever seen. What bothered you most about taking on this role? You know, as, uh, I'm, I'm a, a football dad. And uh, my, my son, Trey, played for four years at Oaks Christian, uh, which is a, a football powerhouse. You know, it was just one of the most beautiful times in my life as a parent, that the bonding, the, the excitement for the family, the Friday night lights, I loved it. So you know, when I received this screenplay, um, I, was, I was really conflicted. Repetitive head trauma chokes the brain. It turns you into someone else. I, 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 don't, I really don't want to be that guy. The guy who... The, the guy who uh, reveals that uh, playing football could potentially cause brain damage. They're terrified of you. In the movie Concussion, Will Smith is Dr. Bennett Amalu, the Nigerian-born pathologist who found out what kind of damage those repeated hits can do to a football player's brain. And in the film anyway, made some people in the NFL very angry indeed. <laughs> the NFL owns a day of the week. The same day the church used to own, now it's theirs. Someone says in the film, the NFL owns a day of the week. Yeah. Were yeah. you worried about taking them on? I'm, I'm not expecting to be invited to the Super Bowl next year. Denzel will probably get my tickets this year. Um, but after meeting Dr. Amalu and after getting up to speed on the science, I felt solid that I'd be willing to take whatever, whatever I had to take to, to deliver the information. You'd be willing to take the hit, yeah. essentially. Yeah. Truth is, he's been up for a challenge all of his life. Now this is a story all about how my life got flipped, turned upside down. And I'd like to take a minute, just sit right there. I'll tell you how I became the prince of a town called Bel Air. Will Smith was already a successful recording artist when he was tapped to star in a hit TV series. He had zero acting experience, but it wasn't much of a stretch to see him play a wisecracking teenager. It is amazing. You certainly have grown, Will. Well, we all have. <laughs> but this was a stretch. The book is primarily about paralysis. I mean, the boy can't function. In Six Degrees of Separation, Smith played a social climbing street hustler, and he got so into the role, he had a tough time getting out of it. So my character was in, in love with Stocker Channing. So the movie ended and all that, and I go home, and I'm a newlywed, and I have a you know, six-month-old baby, and I sit there, and my mind is drifting, thinking about Stocker, and I was like, <laughs> And I realized that I have fallen in love with Stockard Channing. You, Will Smith. Me, Will, had fallen in love with Stockard. And I'm like <laughs> dying and yearning. I'll be outside our hotel room. Hey, hey, Stockard, hey. <laughs> hey, girl, what you, what you doing? <laughs> but and that's good like, acting. No, that's terrible acting. <laughs> that's not acting at all. <laughs> 
bad acting or not, Will Smith had a little goal back then, to be the biggest movie star in the world. You know what the difference is between you and me? I make this look good. Did you think it was a little audacious to say, I want to be the biggest movie star in the world that early um, on? I mean, this is, I think, yes, but I think it's, it's as audacious as saying, uh, hey, what, what if we take this metal and wrap it and put some stuff out on the sides and fly it over the ocean? So you have to be yeah. audacious. You have to dream big in order for it to happen. Yeah, I, I feel like I made up what I call a new, a new old saying. Being realistic is the most commonly traveled road to mediocrity. There must be something to that. Will Smith, whose wife Jada is a star in her own right, has two Oscar nominations. And for most of the past 20 years, few other actors have packed a bigger box office punch. Welcome to Earth. 1996's Independence Day alone grossed more than a quarter of a billion dollars. That's what I call a close encounter. In fact, Will Smith is the only actor ever to star in eight consecutive number one films. Did that make you feel infallible? Yes, definitely uh, felt that uh, I, I couldn't miss. And uh, that, that perspective got corrected a little bit. How, uh, it got corrected. <laughs> what corrected? <laughs> yeah, it's like, oh shoot, I can miss when I shoot. <laughs> <laughs> Do not move. 2013's After Earth, which also starred his son Jaden, was one of those misses. It's one thing it doesn't go right with you, but then when it doesn't go how you want with your kids, it, I, I, was, I was devastated. So did you get into a funk? Uh, I, got, I, I was in a funk for those three days. And then that Monday morning, I got a call uh, that my father had been diagnosed with cancer. And it was like, got it. I, I understand. Perspective. You know, got it. Perspective, crystal clear. Science. And maybe that explains why the 47-year-old Smith wanted to do concussion. If you continue to deny my work, the world will deny my work. But men... Your men continue to die. In the movie, Smith's character is vilified after he goes public with his research. Tell the truth. The real Dr. Bennett Amalu says it's all true. I was uh, bruised, battered, marginalized, ridiculed, dismissed, um, pretty much asked to shut up. And shut up. They, they wanted to exterminate me professionally by requesting that my paper be retracted. They wanted to exterminate you professionally, yeah, yeah. just wipe um, out your career, basically. Yes. If your scientific paper is retracted, you're finished. Dr. Omalu says the film is true to every detail, down to the way he talks. I listened to, I listened to his voice, and Bennett's voice is it's a lot more round. The sound of Bennett's voice. <laughs> <laughs> and that laugh? I know, right? Yeah. 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 Isn't like, that beautiful? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
What do they want? The NFL wants you to say you made it all up. I made it up. They're accusing you of fraud. This is not just a film about football. This is not just a film about concussions. This is your life story. Absolutely. What do you want people to take away from that? What people want to take away is that we are one family. Mm -hmm. We are one love. Mm -hmm. We are one hope. We all need to be joyful people because life can be wonderful if we choose to make it wonderful. Nice uh, I don't think I'm going to try to top that. But he may try to top himself. For Will Smith, being a huge movie star just might not be enough. There's a contribution to the world inside of me that I can't reach. There's a thing that I'm supposed to be doing. There's a person that I want to be that I always saw the reflection in my grandmother's eyes, you know, of what, what it is, but I, I can't reach that thing. There's so much more that I feel that I have to offer that I can't access in myself. Still now? Still now, absolutely. Any idea how that's going to come out? If people keep saying all the crazy kind of stuff they've been saying on the news uh, lately about uh, walls and Muslims, they're going to force me into the political arena. What are you going to run for? I mean, I got to be the president, you know. (laughs) Come on, man. Really? Come on. Keep it real. How are you going to ask me that? (laughs) You know, what else would I run for? (laughs) Audacious? Sure. But leave it to Will Smith to think big. Up next, a life in harmony. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. A song of the season, sung by the heavenly voices of the choir of New College, Oxford. That chorus is beloved in England, and with Martha Teichner now, we'll see and hear why. For more than 600 years, this sound has filled this space. Not the sound of angels, but small boys. singing in the chapel of New College, part of the University of Oxford. The choir was founded in 1379, the year New College was new, more than a century before Columbus discovered America. This is a story about time, about what changes and what doesn't what is of the moment, and what seems eternal. This is the black ones, what they wear every day at chapel. For a boy of five, there is no such thing as history. Come and join us. Only a way of life that might begin 
this way. London's burning, London's burning. With a lesson from Edward Higginbottom, leader of the choir for 38 years. They sort of get a feeling for it. They get, they get, oh, this, this feels rather nice. Each spring, parents and children are invited to see what it's like to be a chorister. They literally try it on for size. The real thing that makes a difference is this child of five. This gets to put on a cassock and stands alongside one of the boys here and sings as best they can. Or, you know, opens their mouths and pretends to sing. I can remember when I first put it on, I was thinking, I, I can't actually breathe in this. Uh, and that was my first thought. And then I Meet started, Tom. And then I started uh, breathing very deeply and I sort of got the hang of it. Since its founding, the choir has always had 16 boy choristers, plus several more in training, who sing alongside the men. Only four new boys are chosen each year to replace the four who age out and leave at 13, or earlier if their voices have changed. When you auditioned, was it scary? Well, my legs were almost between liquid and solid. <laughs> this is Oscar. What was it like when you heard you got in? I was, oh my gosh, speechless. It's sort of become a part of me, really. I, 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 I'm, I do singing. And this is Joseph. We practice a lot, but when you see the results you get, the rewards sort of cancel out all the hard work which you have to put in. Hard work indeed. Their lunch breaks, their afternoons, their weekends. That was in D-flat major. For as long as six years spent learning music theory and the music they will sing at evening services in the chapel, as well as on tour around the world. The choir has also recorded extensively. As long as the choir has existed, New College School has existed. But the choristers live double lives as normal boys and as professionals. Like characters in a Harry Potter film, putting on their caps and gowns, leaving their classmates behind for the rigors of the song room. There's no sense that they're losing their childhood? Well, this is their childhood. I mean, what richer childhood could you have? I mean, they're still doing all the things that kids do. They're still playing their football. They're still messing around. And even singing for fun. I like the flowers, I like the daffodils. Before it's time to work again. For the time they are here, their days are spent filling the medieval buildings with music. These gargoyles stay and stare. Boys have come and gone. On December 10th, 1738, chorister William Hicks carved his name. You can see that just hundreds and hundreds of initials carved in, and I think mine were somewhere in here. 
250 years later, CBS News Sunday morning producer John Karras left his mark. This is 1987, 1988. Here I am, right in the middle in the front row. I have left a little piece of myself here, but the other thing is, is this place stays with me every day. Each year brings its regular rites of passage, its beginnings and endings. And I hereby induct you, Thomas Simpson. At the end of the school term, new boys were formally inducted. And Edward Higginbottom, a titan of British choral music, retired. But he's not exactly leaving. Part of an extraordinary sixth century history, there he is. He'll stay and stare as boys come and go. You can find moments of beauty and intensity that mark you for life. Special moments, that's what I go away with, enriched. And, and, I, and I hope it's what, what touches them as well. Asked to describe their sound, Edward Higginbottom replied, sometimes spun steel, sometimes soft tissue. The frantic run-up to Christmas easily makes the Scrooges among us say bah humbug. So what does our contributor Bill Flanagan think? People used to get offended when stores put up their Christmas decorations the day after Thanksgiving. This year, they went up the day after Halloween. The Christmas season has never been more commercial. And you know what? I think that's great. I know people lament that the true meaning of Christmas is getting lost in the commercial frenzy, but this is America. Commerce is our currency. You can tell how much we love something, football, 4th of July, dinner, by how we overdo it. Christmas is our biggest blowout, which means that underneath all the plastic snowmen and chocolate Santas and holiday sales, way down deep, part of us still values the promise made in a cave in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. That's a promise that there is more to this world than what we see. There is meaning to this life beyond how much stuff we have or how much money we owe. It's a promise that no matter how dark the world seems, we are heading toward a light. For believers, Christmas holds the hope of forgiveness and salvation. But even if your faith has faded, Christmas time might connect you with those you still care about. And if you've lost those you love, the season reminds you that love is real, that love is the only emotion that does not fade with time. Time makes love grow stronger. So deck the malls with boughs of holly in a world filled with bad news. Christmas is a big, blinking electric billboard for the best part of us. I hope that light never goes out. I'm Charles Osgood. Please join us again next Sunday morning. Till then, I'll see you on the radio. 
Did you want to come cook with us? Vamos! Let's get cooking! Your preschooler can swing into action with Dora and Boots for a musical adventure in her brand new podcast. Recipe for adventure! It's Dora's recipe for adventure, and she's cooking up special treats with all her friends and family. We've got everyone's favorite dishes. Empanada! Paleta! We're cooking up a family adventure, and Dora has the perfect recipe. Listen to Dora's recipe for adventure wherever you get your podcasts.